The title of the talk this evening is The Governing Laws of the Mind. <clears throat> and I, uh, it's one of those uh, insights that led to this talk that you remember where you were when you had the insight. And I remember it was a, some 20 or so years ago and I was in a rocking chair <clears throat> and uh, just had this, uh, just saw something. <clears throat> I thought, oh, it's so obvious. <clears throat> where has this, where has this insight been? Which is often the feeling of it. It's like so, so obvious. Uh, and then uh, over the years, the implication of this particular understanding has dawned on me. <clears throat> and I think it's extraordinarily important that we get this principle down because as you uh, begin to practice and see this principle, which I'll talk about in just a minute, you'll see that it completely changes uh, our relationship to virtually every aspect of practice. Nothing remains the same. Nothing remains uninfluenced by this. And so it is with that, with that as my intention for us to really look and see, it's undisputable. The insight is undisputable. But we keep behaving as if we didn't believe it. And so I <coughs> would <coughs> welcome us to start folding our energies into this insight so that we can uh, begin to align our practice in proper, proper orientation to where it's supposed to go. So what is this principle? First of all, let me say that um, I'm going to speak about the laws of the mind that have been derived from this principle. Many of those laws are understandings that are very obvious, and most people, even if they're not in Dharma, uh, can, it's hard to disagree with any of them. And many of them have found their way to these laws accidentally because the opposite doesn't work. But they don't understand, many, few people understand the principle that governs these laws. When you understand the principle that governs these laws, the laws are, of course, of course, that's the way it works. Of course. And so it's kind of a fun, it's fun in that way to see that Dharma takes us to sort of the foundation on which the understanding of the mind um, moves. So the, this principle <clears throat> uh, is simply that you and your mind are not two things, are not one, are, but are one and the same thing. You are not outside of your mind. We think of ourselves as having a mind. We think of ourselves as sort of existing outside of the mind and having a mind and having a body. But on closer inspection, you see that what we take ourselves to be is actually a part of that mental process. So to say you're out of your mind <laughs> may be figuratively true, right? But never actually true. The mind in you are not separate. There's not two. They're not two things. And so when you understand that, when, when we understand that, you, it, when we make an effort towards something, it's the mind efforting itself, right? Because we have two hemispheres, let us say. We have the hemisphere of the mind that is having the experience of, say, anger. And then we have the commentator about me and principle and in image having that 
experience of anger or whatever it might be. And then we have a whole set of commentary from one side of the mind over against the other. Now, in all of Dharma practice is to try to bring these two hemispheres together so that one shuts up <laughs> and lets the other one be. That's it. But as long as we think of ourselves as outside of it, as having a mind, then we're going to be in continual argument with it because the damn thing isn't cooperative. It's not going my way and I have to, re- I have to control it. I have to force it. I have to exert effort on it when it's actually an internal process that's occurring with one part of the mind in disagreement with the other. And of course, any disagreement like that is going to call, cause more divis- divis- divisiveness, more friction more tension. To paraphrase Lincoln, a house divided itself, a mind divided itself cannot stand. So you begin to see that if we even understood this principle, it would change our practice entirely. There are really two distinct forms of practice. They can be summarized very generally, but one form of practice contains and maintains that the sense of self is outside of the mind. And therefore, it tries to do everything it can to tame or to cultivate or to tranquilize or to do something to the mind. The other form of practice is to shut up and let it alone. To just be still so that it can be whole once more rather than condemned forever within the conversations of our disappointment, of our contempt, of our inadequacy. And to think that we can change one so that it comes into agreement with the other is unrealistic. It's unrealistic. You can have some effect on it, but basically it's always going to chatter at you until we realize that there's a unifying principle here. There's a way that these things come together. And then we look at our practice and we go, oh, of course, of course love is the answer. Of course um, uh, uh, allowance. And I'll go through um, the performance indicators, the in, uh, how instructions come out of this particular understanding of non-divisiveness, of non-division. So what are these laws that are governed by this principle? Uh, There are many. In fact, it stimulated me enough to think of writing a book about it. But So I just wrote down six, but there's probably 60. And you can probably add your own to it. So let me just walk through this because you begin to see, oh, of course, if I just knew that principle, if I could just see and rest with that principle, of course, that makes sense. Otherwise, I don't know how we come to that. I mean, I don't know what theory of mind comes, can bring forth all of the, these laws under the same umbrella. It's a mystery to me. So what are some of the laws? <clears throat> The first law, the more you avoid something, the more you ensure its return. 
Doesn't it make absolute sense? You can't decide the content of your mind. How can one hemisphere decide the content for the whole of it? The more you avoid something, I, it's, it's interesting because these laws are not just laws that govern our internal a mental process, but are also, interestingly enough, because there is no inside and outside as we go deeper into our understanding, they also govern the way life comes at us. So here's, a, here's an example. My wife, uh, a dear woman, very, very sensitive woman, he doesn't particularly like insects of crawly types like spiders and centipedes and scorpions and those kinds of things. So, but she has a, a rather um, uh, heightened fear, more than average. <clears throat> so, okay, so she has this and she's intense. And every time I catch a spider because her brother used to throw spiders at her, She's afraid I'm going to do that. And of course, I'd never do that. (laughs) I wouldn't. (laughs) And so she, you know, she gets, starts running in a different part of the house and all that. So uh, there are, uh, there's one species of spider in Seattle that has a rather um, difficult, deadly, not deadly, but a severe sting. And uh, she was downstairs in our basement and uh, reaching down between a box, and she got stung by what uh, is that, that spider called a hobo spider in Seattle. And her arm swelled up. I don't know, first of all, I know of no other I've never seen a hobo spider down in our basement. I, I know of no one who has ever in any house in Seattle been stung by a hobo spider. But there is her. She's been stung by a hobo spider. Okay? So I think, well, okay, there's the first law. <laughs> I don't tell her that, but I... You know. So then we go off to, uh, he, uh, to Texas. To, she cooks, does some, um, cooks, uh, she cooks uh, for some of the Dharma courses. And so we're at, uh, we're in central Texas. um, And um, we're um, staying in this room. She gets up in the morning to prepare breakfast and puts on her shoe. And lo and behold, a scorpion's in her shoe and stings her. So this is one day in Texas. So I, it's it's baffling to me. So I go... (laughs) I go out to the hall of, say, some 50 people, and I say, uh, you know, how many of you have lived your whole life in Texas? And probably half or two-thirds of the people raise their hand. Have any of you ever been stung by a scorpion? Nobody raises their hand. (laughs) So it's it's beginning to get a sense that this fear response actually brings things towards you, you see. In exactly the same way as it does in the dynamics of our internal world, because the tension of fear doesn't release that object from the mind. It invites a closer, connective, resistant relationship. 
For instance, if I said to you, okay, I would like you to sit down, and the one word I do not want you to think of the entire time you're sitting is apple. Okay, so here's 45 minutes. And how many times do you think you're going to think of the word apple? You see, it's that where we put, we, where we invest our energy not to, it's just like holding that component to us. And you begin to see, okay, this is beginning to understand this fact. of, And it makes complete sense when you understand that the sense of I, the one that holds the fear, is a part of the mind that also holds the fear object. So to try to turn away, for it to try to turn away from itself makes no sense at all. It's just going to be brought closer and closer to it. So it's an impo- the, the Dharma point to that is it's impossible to do an end run around any problem at all. In fact, it's the aversion we have to an experience that creates the problem. It's not the event itself. It's not the experience. It's not the emotion. That's never the problem. You see? So it, the problem doesn't rest in itself, which from the point of view of me having a mind, it does. But from the point of view, the right, correct orientation, which is that I'm a fabric part and parcel of the mind, it makes complete sense. Of course. Of course the problem is in the tension that one half or one part of the mind holds to the other. Of course. You see, in that sense, we really have three options. We can avoid something. We can repress or deny it. Or we can let it be itself. Those are our options. And as long as we think of ourselves as having a mind, we're going to try to repress it or get rid of it so that we can get it out of the mind. But when we understand that principle, then there's only one option left, and that's to let it be. Perfect example is anger. We can't decide we're not going to be angry. We can't make a decision. Okay, I'm just not going to have anger anymore. That's, I'm done with that one. That's, that's a setup. And you can't repress it. You can't push it away. How can one part of the mind push it away? All it can do is turn its back on it, pretend it's not there, and thereby invite it, amplify its magnitude. in that subtle avoidance. You see, Christ understood that when he said, resist not evil. I don't know how the fundamental Christians get around that one. I don't, it, it does, because it doesn't make any sense from where their principles lie. But he understood, you can't resist it. You can't do that. You can't be moralistic like that because you create the very shadow 
you stimulate it sufficiently so that in your resistance you assure its return. Now, the application, the corollary, the application that follows that law is one that you've heard us all speak about, and that is just allowing and letting be. That's in aligned with the principle. So you begin to see how you work with your mind has to be in aligned with the principle. If you aren't, if we work with the mind so that we are counter to that principle, then the system will break down. It has to. And that's why, for most of us, our system has already broke down. That's why we find ourselves in the meditation hall. It's because our system is breaking down. Because we have been working under the illusion of being outside of the mind and having one. But even the most basic dharma perception begins to show you what what could possibly be outside the mind. Where do you lie outside the mind? And if you're inside the mind, why make a problem of it? Why make a problem of yourself? You're just a mental occurrence. There's no need to get upset about it. There really isn't any need to get upset with with ourselves. In fact, we have the perfect resolution to that is that we just be quiet with us, about us. We just be quiet. We don't feed the complaining cycle. Second law of thermodynamics. <laughs> we cannot force the mind to bring forth what is hidden. You ever find that? Well, you've forgotten something. You know, it's on the tip of your tongue. If you go in there with some kind of uh, wrecking bar <laughs> or shovel... It's, uh, but then you like you forget about it and start talking, and then it pops into your mind, right? Isn't that how it works? When you let go of the pressure of remembering, you remember. You see, which makes perfect sense. Well, the pressure to remember forces the resistance of forgetting. <laughs> it's so obvious. <laughs> It's also very interesting how that works in terms of forgiveness. You can't force yourself to forgive. You allow forgiveness. You allow forgiveness. What we can do, and uh, the theme that runs through this entire talk is a very important one because you could understand more and more how you can't do anything to yourself and how self-betterment, self-improvement is, is an end. You can perhaps do a little tapering here and tampering there, but fundamentally it's going to lead nowhere. This is huge, you see. The implications of this is huge. In fact, there should be a warning sign before I did this talk. Don't come. 
unless you want to be confused and <laughs> because this is huge it really is and when you start moving into this thing you go oh my god what i've been doing to myself you know we'll I'll, we'll be having a group the teachers will be having a group and in one and this hasn't happened in this course so none of you are so one person will say you know I, my my sittings are just so full of emotional volatility. And the next person will say, God, I'm not having any emotions at all. And the one who's volatile will look at the one who's not and say, God, I wish my practice was like yours. And the one who's not will look at the one who's volatile and say, I wish my practice was like yours. And none of us are really willing to be with our practice as it is. We're trying to either dig something up that's not there or tamper and repress something that is all of which is completely futile, completely futile. Digging out emotions and, or, or, or the corollary of that, which is to try to generate more. I'm not generous enough. I'm not loving enough. What isn't? A thought isn't. Stop thinking that thought. And dividing the mind out and you'll find all the love you want, all the generosity there is. But we're so sure that that thought somehow has a location outside of the mental process that it's derived from. We're so sure of that, aren't we? Where is it? It's not even, you can't even locate it. We just assume it. And so the willingness to soften and relax. The one thing we can do is when we get caught up in a particular form of self-deceit, which is really the practice of meditation, is to show us those forms of self-deceit that we get caught up in. Look not with some scolding attitude, but look to understand what it is that you're getting from doing whatever it is, skillfully or unskillfully. See what you're getting from it. See how it's feeding you. See what experience, what you're getting from it, what you want from it. And then also see its limitation. See where the rub is. Don't deny either side. Well, I shouldn't have desire. No, see what you're getting from the desire. See how it's feeding you. And then also see the limitation where it's depleting us. And when you look at both sides of the equation, I assure all of us that what the value that we're getting from a mental experience will not sustain itself sufficiently so that we turn away from the genuine fullness of heart that is on the other side of that. And as I mentioned, forgiveness is one of the ones where we're most stuck. We get most frozen. And the mind loves that because it freezes us, the sense of me, in a particular perspective to my past. And so then the, the hemisphere gets frozen in dialogue. 
really in monologue. And you can't force forgiveness. You just, okay, let me see the pain. I can witness the pain. I can bear witness to the pain without the self-condemnation. I think of sometimes, I think of us as sort of being on the uh, surface of a lake and the awareness, consciousness is uh, the lake and awareness is just looking at the surface of the lake. And all our job is is to watch the fish jump. Not to go under the lake and try to dig something up. Just stay on the surface and watch the fish jump. And sometimes the fish don't jump and it's smooth. Don't look for any meaning to that smoothness. Then there are a lot of fish, a whole school jump. And that's okay. There's no need to make anything of one or the other. Our job is just to look. Looking doesn't have any divisive effect on it. If we look with judgment, then we're looking from divisiveness. But if we're just looking, just understanding, you can begin to see how these two halves will start coming together. Through understanding, now we're beginning to see the value of wisdom. You see, wisdom is from the whole, is bringing the whole together. That's where insights come from. In a moment in which we're not inwardly confused or self-condemning, and which is, or many moments, but that's not where our identity doesn't um, rest in those moments. It rests in the confusing and the problematic sense of me. But there are many moments throughout the day when you're not causing that kind of self-destruction. And that, those are fertile grounds for insight to arise. For insight can only arise in the wholeness when the two halves are together. Or that is the link. That's like the electricity where the wires touch. It can't touch when the halves are in a discursive or, or dis, um, disorientation to one another or confusion to one another or disagreement or argument with one another. The, the electricity, the wires don't touch. But when there is harmony, the wires touch and the thing lights up. That's how insight occurs. That's the electrical formulation of the problem. (laughs) The third law. You cannot eliminate anything through force of will. One part of the mind trying to muscle itself. The mind is a closed system. How can one idea put an end to another idea how can that be how could that happen only understanding I can't force anything can't align anything through force of will and we are full of idealization, expectation, self, 
judgment. We have a whole range of ideas and memories of, and uh, expectations of who we should be, all of which cause confusing energy to this whole circuit. Nothing is in harmony when we are at ourselves, over our shoulders, censoring ourselves, commentating, because we arrest the beauty of the whole through keep, but through constant subdivision. The corollary, the application of this particular principle is since we can't get rid of anything through force of will, the only thing that we can do is to understand it. The only thing we can do is to not judge it, because judgment isn't understanding it, not to bring an argument to it, because that's not understanding it. It's to be quieter now, self, enough, so that there is the ability for awareness to permeate the other side of the issue so that it understands the position of that other side. Or if it's a mind state, it understands the harmlessness of that mind state as we create less and less noise about that mind state. The noise is the problem, not the thing itself. The fourth law We cannot meet the mind with the same energy it is emitting. Now, there's been a lot of of interviews that I've had during this course in which people are talking about feeling over-controlling and they're controlling this and controlling that. And then the sense of self comes in and they try to control the controller, loosen the controller, not control, all of which is really more control, isn't it? You can't do that. Like when your anger arises and then you get perturbed or frustrated because you're angry. That's emitting the same energy towards the source. That's throwing, that's throwing wood on the fire, right? Or when we are, feel ourselves to be impatient and we get impatient with our impatience. Do you see that? And we, yet we think that that's the holy and noble stance to take. is sort of indignation, righteous indignation never realizing that that's just breeding the same fire within the mind that we are scolding ourselves for having. You see how this single principle, take it and take it down and swallow it and ingest it because it changes everything. The application... Listen to the application. How then, given that fact, given that law that we cannot meet the mind with the same energy as humanity, what's the applicating principle? Love. Love. Because that's the one energy of inclusiveness, of wholeness, of non-divisive. Every other energy contains a kind of division within it. Love. Love also frees us from the story of the memory. 
You, see, you have to, each one of these laws, each one of the, you have to, we each have to discover for ourselves. I can give you them and you can list them, but it won't do us any good. It would just make us a philosopher. So what's the next one? The fifth law. The fifth law is it's all or nothing. Right? You have to take the whole of you or you might as well take yourself to the dump. (laughs) Because you can't have half of you, which is what we have been trying to do, is to have half of us, to have the part of ourselves that we appreciate, but not the other part. And so we want half the mind. We want a lobotomy. And you begin to see, you begin to understand. Christ again said, uh, if you bring forth what is it within you, what you bring forth will uh, heal you. If you do not bring forth what is within you, what you do not bring forth will destroy you. And you, we realize that we have to look at the entire range all the areas that we don't like about ourselves, which has set up this kind of inward argument and turmoil. All those issues, those caves of self-doubt, those areas of unexplored unworthiness, all of that, it's, 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 a, it's a total sanity. This is a project of total sanity. And the worst remark, one of the worst remarks I ever heard was by someone who said, my neurosis doesn't stand in the way of my enlightenment or something like that which is totally weird it's not true (laughs) it's just a completely false statement I say this publicly (laughs) it does everything it cuts you in two It's, it's a complete sanity and when we realize that we go wherever we're insane we don't try to to pretend we're not. And it's a, a tremendously humbling experience to admit after 35 years of practice that we're still insane, that there are still areas of insanity. And yet that's what it's called, calls us to do. It's all or nothing. You see, no, like resentment, I hope you're not just listening to the this is some sort of funny talk. I hope you're more sincere than that. This is deadly serious. Like um, we think of ourselves, for instance, if we have an idea that we are, uh, you know, that we uh, uh, like to help people, and the person next door calls us at 2 o'clock in the morning and asks us to take us to the airport because his car has failed or something like that. And we don't want to do it. 
but because our idea of ourselves, our image of ourselves, is that we do those kinds of things. We deny the resentment that it is also bringing up, and we go and do it, and then we find ourselves snappy all day, irritated, annoyed with anyone asking anything of us, because we haven't completely opened in honesty to the resentment that occurred. It doesn't take away from your good-heartedness that you may still do it, but to honor the resentment that you don't want to do it. There's part of me that doesn't want to do this. That keeps it sane. You deny that part because the image is so strong that you do these kinds of things without resentment, then you'll have resentment anyway. You just have a divided mind with your resentment. Another, it's interesting, you know, when, when, it's all, when it's all or nothing, all things are equally important. Nothing is more important than anything else. Nothing in life is more important than anything. You see, it's also external. I'm, every one of these laws has its application externally. Nothing is more important. You're not more important than the ant. I'm sorry to say. We would love to think of ourselves as being God's blessed creature, but we are not. Everything is held equally because it's all or nothing. And it's a whole different approach to life from that understanding. And you begin to see from that understanding the way of nonviolence. Because when we are violent within, which means we have an internal rancor with ourselves, an internal argument against a constant mental argument against every image that might arise, every f- experience emotionally and otherwise that might be there, that is how we see the world the world will manifest in exactly that way to us. And our methodology within that rancor will be the same externally. So you begin to see that if we really want nonviolence, we must end it in the mind. The application, the application of principle a practice to this law is inclusivity, not to. No more, not to. Not to inside, not to outside. Not to. Inclusive. The sixth law. We cannot effort our way to transcendence. No struggle. No struggle. The way to transcendence is to stop the struggle. 
There is no other way. Every effort is an effort to overcome yourself, to get to some other place. The end of that is transcendence. To make ourselves whole. And you begin to see that the only thing that can do that, the only application of principle, is stillness. The whole of the mind, the undivided mind. Trusting awareness, because now we can no longer trust our inward voice of discontent. So what is it that we trust when we have that taken away from us? We trust that which makes us whole. Because wholeness does not know itself. It's only through division that we know ourselves. And that's why we keep dividing ourselves out so that we'll have a voice to know. In wholeness, we will not be known. And we will not be divided out. We will be abiding within. That is freedom. That is the end of the problem. It was all conceptually induced. Now our practice, how we work with ourselves, must be in aligned with that principle or we do disservice, we create more division, more angst, more violence. When we understand that, the game is over. Because awareness, which is love, is not divisive. The mind, you will always know to be divisive because it will always have an opinion about what it's seeing. But that which sees doesn't have an opinion. And you learn less and less to pay attention to the opinion and more and more to that which sees. And then wholeness, wholeness is known. And wholeness feels like wholeness of heart. It feels like wholeness of aliveness. Spontaneous eruption. May all of us know that wholeness. Can we sit for a minute or two?
So how do we sit as we sit in this moment? Take the pressure off. Release the angst. Let what there what is there be there. It's not a problem. And feel yourself grow into the heart through non-division. Feel it now in the stillness we keep together. Thank you all. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.